first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper in our worship services in the morning. And actually, those of us who work together crafting the services, we try to make every element of the service move us towards that experience towards the end of the service. And I thought the music this morning did an exceptionally good job at that. You know, there's a psalm in the Old Testament in Psalm 48. In the Psalter, it's one that's usually called a Song of Zion. There's a few psalms like that. And they're psalms that focus on the city of Jerusalem. In fact, those of us who try to figure out how the psalms were used in worship note that it seems that it was a time when worshipers, probably when they came to the festivals where they celebrated the different uh, feasts of the Jewish calendar in the Old Testament, that they would actually walk around the city, perhaps led by a priest or a Levite, and they would use this psalm in worship. And one of the things it says is, walk about the city and look at the different elements of it, these massive walls of this fortress set on top of a mountain that is impregnable, and uh, the battlements and the ramparts. And look at the temple, this beautiful building in the midst of the city where God is worshipped just as he is appointed. And it's probably the primary Old Testament image that people were supposed to carry in their minds when they thought about God. In fact, the, the psalm ends after saying, look at all these things. It says, tell your children, probably the worshipers who hadn't brought their babies all the way to Jerusalem, go home after this festival and tell your children that this is God, our God forever. Now, it doesn't mean this. This city is God. They obviously didn't believe that. But this was the representation of what God was and what the kingdom of God was under the old covenant. Now, we know that now that Jesus has come, we've learned that that temple and that city in Jerusalem were just like a, a dim reflection of the reality of the city and temple in heaven, that which will be the new heavens and new earth when we read the end of the Bible. So that image is very important, but we live in between those two times, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And I think that the image that we are meant to have is a little bit different than Psalm 48. If there's any image that ought to draw our attention to God and what he is like for us, it's before us on this table. Really, between the first and the second coming of Christ, this is the representation of everything God is for us. It's a table, like a family table. We sit ourselves around it so that we can participate in what God gives to us. And on it are the gifts of God that have been given for the people of God. And note how simple these things are. It is just bread made from the earth and the fruit of grapes. That's all that it is. And yet these are the God-appointed signs that are meant to be the object of our attention this morning in which we focus through them on the kingdom of God. So why don't we pray that we do that in our time of worship this morning. Our gracious God, you are the one who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You are the one, you tell us, who has transferred us, your people, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Please, we ask now, meet with us here. Teach us yourself. Open our minds to understand your word and move our hearts to obey it so that we might follow you more wholeheartedly and our hearts might be even more awakened and enlivened to be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I'd like to draw your attention to a passage that's found in the New Testament, if you take a Bible, and it would probably be good to do it because I'll be referring to this passage quite a bit this morning. Take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. This is on page, I think it's 689 in your Bible, or is it 869? 869 in your Bible. And I'm going to read what follows from where we were last time, beginning in verse 14, Luke 11, beginning in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But... If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But one stronger, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, when my children were small, about 1990, it was before the flood for some of you children, (laughs) I took them once down to Cobo Hall with some neighbor kids, some of you might know, Ted and Eve Beatty. And uh, I grew up in Ann Arbor, but we didn't go to Detroit when I was growing up. I mean, just a small handful of times. So for me to drive down to Detroit with a bunch of little kids was like, a little bit intimidating, and uh, this time something happened that all those children still remember. There was a line to get into Cobo Roof Parking, so the line was all the way down onto the street, and an official-looking person walked up to my car, and I rolled down the window, and he put an official-looking paper on the dashboard of my car, and he said, since things are backed up, we're taking the money here, but uh, when you get up to the roof, just tell them and show them this paper, and they'll let you park. So I gave him the 10 bucks, and when we got to the top, I said to the parking attendant just exactly what I had been told to say, and he looked at me with this wry look as if to say, you've been taken, you country bumpkin. (laughs) Now, the children weren't very old, but they were old enough to know that something had gone amiss in the transaction there, and uh, so I told them exactly what any self-respecting adult would say. I said, listen, I I did that on purpose so that you'd learn how easily you can be cheated. (laughs) But they didn't buy it. Now, at some point, all of us in life have been flim-flammed, and uh, we develop a natural skepticism to anything out of the ordinary that seems just too good to be true. And because religion is that realm in which charlatans easily traffic Uh, We all have a natural skepticism to anything purporting to be miraculous and supernatural. And, in fact, we should. 
the problem, of course, is that our skepticism may keep us from seeing the supernaturally when it actually occurs. Or it may cause us to deny the supernaturally when it occurs. And that's obviously the point of this passage. Jesus performed a miracle, in this case, the healing of a man by casting out a demon, and so that the man who was unable to speak could suddenly speak in whole sentences, and we're told the people marveled. Now, that might make us think that they were uh, very accepting of what Jesus did and of his miracle, but in fact, we learned that they weren't. It's possible for people to marvel but still be skeptical, just like you or I might be astonished at someone who performs a uh, incredible magic trick, even though we know it's just sleight of hand and we're constantly trying to figure out how did he do that. Now, in this case, the skepticism takes two directions. Some there accuse him of doing this by Satan's power. He's colluding with evil spiritual forces in order to wow people with his magic tricks, they said. Others kept asking for a sign. That wasn't enough. And these people show up throughout the Gospels until the very end, always asking for more. So for the first group, his signs pointed to evil intention. For the second group, no sign would ever be enough. And in either case, they weren't convinced by what he had done. And the passage is all about how Jesus responded to this. He responds in a very simple way using very relentless logic. He starts by presenting a principle that everyone accepts. And down on the base of that principle, he says, let's apply this to this situation. First, let's suppose that you're right, and I'm acting in collusion with Satan. What follows from that? On the second hand, uh, let's say uh, that, imagine that you're wrong, and I'm acting under the power of God. And he draws each of these points out to their logical and inescapable conclusion. Now, I've spoken on the influence of demons before here, so I don't want to say a lot, but I know that not everyone's here when I've spoken on it. So let me just say, the Bible regards the existence of evil spiritual forces opposed to God as being very real, but not to be feared by Christians. Demons have um, a more conspicuous place in the four Gospels. We're in one of the Gospels here. In that one part of the Bible, demons who appear elsewhere are very conspicuous throughout the life story of Jesus. And the reason for that, which this passage is part of something that makes it obvious, <clears throat> the reason is that in the life and ministry of Jesus, the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan came to a head. It's especially shown in Jesus' ministry on the earth. So uh, if you're here this morning and you doubt the existence of demons, then I only ask you for a few minutes to suspend your disbelief so that you can think and understand the point of the passage, which has actually little to do with demons and much to do with the kingdom of God. Now, let's just follow in the passage the Lord's reasoning with his opponents. First, he presents a principle. It's in verse 17. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. Now, note there he uses two examples, a kingdom and a family. And interestingly, those, if you think of them as social units or units of society, they go from the very largest, a whole nation, to the very smallest, an individual family. And all he's saying is that any unit of society, any social group you can conceive of, if it is internally split, it's going to self-destruct. And of course, we know that's true. It applies across the board. You can even think of an individual organism like a human being. Sometimes people contract diseases 
or things like that, that that cause their organs to fight against each other. And when their organs begin to fight against each other, they're going to die. And if you think of it in terms of a nation, a political party, or a whole nation that's racked by internal conflict, especially conflict in which people are holding diametrically opposed positions that cannot exist together, in that case, that country is in trouble. And some would apply that to our country today. I would be one of them. And Christians ought to give their serious thought and prayer to that subject. But it really is a universal principle. Internal division will lead to ultimate destruction. That's true all the way across the board. Everyone accepts it. Now, in this case, Jesus has performed a miracle, the casting out of a demon. He claims to do his miracles by acting in union, in concert with God, that God has extended to him both the power and the authority to do these things, to heal and cast out demons. And his opponents are claiming that he's either a charlatan or they just can't figure out what he is. In either case, he's acting, in reality, by collusion with Satan. And so the question is, which view is true? Is he from God or is he connected with Satan? And Jesus responds with ruthless logic. He takes the principle and he says, let's take this principle and imagine that I'm acting in collusion with Satan. And let's apply this principle and accept where it leads us to. If I am acting in concert with Satan, then logically two things follow. First, Satan is working against himself. If he's working against himself, he's going to bring about his own ultimate destruction. And that's one of the first principles of his reign, that he is a liar and the father of lies. He is opposed to God. He's opposed to the people of God. And everything that he does is for the ultimate destruction of the kingdom of God. Now, we could imagine, because we're told in the Bible that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that he might do something that appears to be good, but only if it brings about an evil result. And what is the negative result here? This man has been restored to wholeness. And as in all of Jesus' miracles, they were all things in which the person who had been restored was able to do something they weren't able to do before. If a person is mute because they can't hear, usually, they can't hear their own voice, and so they can't speak and can't learn to speak, if their muteness, that is, excuse me, if their muteness was taken away, even if their deafness was taken away in that case, they couldn't speak clearly. They don't have to learn to speak just like a child would. But this man spoke. And that's true of all of Jesus' miracles. They were always complete, instantaneous, and unquestionable. Now, verse 18 is based on verse 17. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And that would apply especially to demon oppression, which was the cause of this man's condition. If he casts out a demon that was oppressing this person, it would be, if Satan does that, it would be like a nation bombing its own cities. It would be like a general in warfare commanding this part of his army to directly attack this other part of his army. He's acting against himself. And any internal split is going to lead to ultimate destruction. That's the first part. He carries it one step further as you go into verse 18. Or verse 19, um, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, what he's saying there essentially is, if you question this miracle, don't you have to question any miracle? And if you question any miracle, you do not have any way of determining the veracity of any miracle that ever occurs. 
If you have no way of determining the legitimacy of a miracle, then effectively you deny the power of God. You could never attribute anything to God. Let's turn the argument around, he says. Let's suppose that my miracles are done by God's power. If we carry this out, that I'm acting in collusion with Satan, it makes no sense. If you apply the principle that internal dissension leads to destruction, it's going to be the end of Satan's kingdom if he does that. Let's turn it around. Suppose my miracles are done by God's power. Suppose that in casting out demons, healing the lame and the blind, the lepers being cleansed, raising the dead, suppose that what I claim is true, then there are only two conclusions that can be drawn. Verse 20, first conclusion, the kingdom of God must be present because those are the very things that Isaiah said would bring in the kingdom. It would be casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the gospel to the poor. That's what I'm doing. So the kingdom of God must be present right now in front of you, he's saying to his opponents. And secondly, the messianic king himself must be present because he's the one who's going to do these things. Now, you see, Jesus' opponents were not secular-thinking people as we have in our culture today. They were religious people. They studied the Old Testament, and the Old Testament told them that when the Messiah came, at least they thought what it said was there was going to be a cataclysmic change, a tremendous change. This age would suddenly, with the appearance of the Messiah, become the age to come. And when the age to come came, all things would be made right that had been wrong. All foreign oppression would end. The Roman government, their foreign oppression at that time, would be cast off. The Messiah would reign over renewed heavens and earth. And as far as they could tell, Jesus wasn't doing that. When he went around, he hardly ever said anything about the Roman government. They didn't even seem to concern to him. He wasn't raising an army to take over the world, which they expected to happen. He was incredibly poor, and he merely was doing small, individual miracles that a few hundred at most people saw. It wasn't going to go anywhere. So when Jesus said to them, you were right, there's going to be a change with the kingdom of God, he's saying the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has started right now. The very things that characterize the kingdom, according to the prophets, has come to pass now. And that's because of the second point. The kingdom of God has come, but the reason you can say it's come is that the king himself is present. Jesus Christ standing there was, in fact, the Messiah. His disciples gathered around him there in the crowd were the presence of the adherents of the kingdom, or where you have the adherents of the kingdom, and you have the king himself, and you have the king performing the works that characterize the kingdom of God, according to the Old Testament. The kingdom must be present. That's what he's saying to these people in front of him. To underline that point, this point uh, that his signs point to being the messianic king and his subjects are present and all of that, he gives a final, very brief parable, a brief illustration. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, note that word, his goods are saved, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overtakes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And here's the point. This world in which we live, according to the Bible, is Satan's realm. It's the realm where he rules. 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. For um, a stronger warrior to break into the realm 
and the palace in which Satan rules and go head-to-head with him in battle for the souls that he holds in his power would require that the person who came in be stronger than he, a stronger warrior. So in casting out demons was conclusively demonstrating the very thing that Satan feared. He disabled his defense systems. He entered into his very realm and plundered his possessions and set people free. That's the whole point of the illustration. The kingdom of God is in front of you. In other words, what you have in this passage is like a logical tour de force. He goes in very brief terms, but he, he says, it is impossible to conceive logically that I could be acting in collusion with Satan. It's logically clear and conclusively that the miracles that I'm doing come from God. And if that's true, I must be the Messiah. And if I am, in fact, the Messiah who was promised, then the kingdom of God is in your very midst right now. And then he draws his inescapable conclusion. The last verse. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, the point is very clear. A single sentence. Jesus is saying, you must choose sides. You must choose sides. There is no middle ground. There's no standing still. If you stand still, you're going to slide backwards. This is God's word to us today. Choose sides. Jesus or Satan? The kingdom of God or the kingdoms of this world? It's nothing nothing less than that. You know, in the early years of the church here, there was... uh, a young woman, she was in her 20s, and she came to church for about three years. I remember her quite clearly, even though she was never involved in much. She stayed afterwards, after services, and talked to people and got to know some people, but she didn't go to a small group or anything like that. I knew that she was a nurse, and she always sat in the second row right there. That row seat's empty today. And uh, uh, she came, and I remember she was very attentive. She listened to everything, and then all of a sudden she was gone, and I didn't see her again. I always wondered what happened to her. And about three years ago, she showed up in a morning service. Uh, now she was in her 40s. Had a husband, two teenage children. And I didn't recognize her at first, but she came up and introduced herself. And it all came back to me who she was. And she just wanted to come back to the church. She has some relatives, and she was visiting the area. And she wanted to tell me how much this church meant to her in her youth, uh, And she told me she was a nurse. I knew that. And she had moved to California. And there she'd gotten married and had children. But she said, I came to faith in this church. I said, really? Now tell me about it. She said, well, it was a a specific time when you spoke. And when she told me about it, I remembered what it is I did. I don't remember what the message was exactly I was preaching. But what happened was in the middle of the message, I said, wake up, Christians. This is not a game we're playing. She said she was so startled. And it, like, brought home to her all these things that she'd been thinking about over a period of months and years. And she said to herself, I've got to make a decision. I can't keep going on living in this vague twilight between belief and unbelief. This vague twilight between a Christian life and and a worldly life. And so she trusted Christ. And shortly after that, she moved away. And I never knew it. But what I'm saying to you this morning is, like, that girl, you need to choose sides. You know, many people in America are living in this vague twilight between belief and unbelief, between discipleship and worldliness. And I can only tell you, it's untenable. Like a kingdom or a family that is internally divided, it will self-destruct eventually. 
It just doesn't work. You know, there's an important passage in the Old Testament. It's kind of obscure, but there's this sentence that sort of summarizes in brief words so much of what I want to say to you here today. It describes the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom in the Old Testament after the split of the kingdom. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was captured, overtaken by the Assyrian Empire, and they were all their families taken into the Assyrian Empire and scattered into various communities in the Assyrian Empire. And you can imagine that. They were ripped from their land, from their homes, with the clothes on their back and whatever they could grab from their house and carry on their back or in their hands. They walked thousands of miles, not knowing where they were going, being led by others, on the way their aged ones and their little ones died and were buried in shallow graves and unknown places, and they were resettled in these distant communities with people who didn't speak their language. And it was done, we're told, because of their unrelenting rebellion against God, their refusal to listen to him. And then it describes what happened there while they were in Assyria. It, it, it says this one sentence. Just listen to it carefully. Second Kings chapter 17. So they, they're in their exile. They feared the Lord. But... They also served their own gods. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. And that's what people always try to do. Every generation. But it doesn't work. It will never work because any kingdom divided against itself will fall. You know, this is what you need to hear. So, let, Especially if you're a young girl like that woman I was speaking of. You're just setting out in life. This is the message you need to hear. God is calling you to give yourself unreservedly to him and to his kingdom. No compromise. I have to tell you, never has a generation been like yours so enticed by such a variation of options that you can choose that go against God. Every generation faces that. My generation faced it. All kinds of options to move against God, think against God, live against God always been around. My parents faced it. My grandparents, all the previous generations faced it. Back to the garden. But what's different about this time is it's like there are only so many, you know, of those menus at the top of your, uh, of your computer. There's only so many of those, and there's only so many categories that you can think of. And they've always been the same. Everybody who's ever been under the sound of the Christian message and is enticed to give lip service to God but serve other gods, they, they're always the same basic categories. They're like social relationships, political viewpoints, cultural attitudes, intellectual objections. They fall into these broad categories that are not limitless. But it's like on your computer in your day, when you pull that menu down, it's like a limitless ends of ways in which that can be shown and experienced. Just think of the speed and the power of social media that does not even allow you a moment's time to evaluate the things that you read. Think about, I read my news on the app, and one thing I've noticed in the last five years, it used to be that whatever you got at the top of the news feed was like the most important things. They don't do that anymore. Now they're mixed up so that the first thing this last week might have been that President Trump was in a meeting with the president of North Korea, the dictator of North Korea. Now, do you know how incredibly significant that is? It's significant in the sense that there are millions of people in this world whose lives are really in the balance on a little country like North Korea getting the, the nuclear bomb. 
I mean, that's a, that's a significant thing happening. And the next thing you might read is what Kim Kardashian wore or did not wear this last week. There is no comparison between those two things. The one is at the top of the list, and the other is not even on the list. It's so far down. But that's what they do to us, so that you can't evaluate what's really important in life and what's not important. What should I spend my time on and not spend my time on? And celebrities from Hollywood display their political power, though they have no real-world experience behind it or education usually. And these things come to us with an onslaught that we can't even begin to contain. And if you're a Christian and a young person, you are constantly caught between these two worlds. And the, the gulf is getting wider between biblical Christianity and secularism. And make no mistake, those two things are diametrically opposed. You can't live in this world and be Christian and do Christian things sometimes and also live in this world. You can't do it comfortably because any kingdom divided against itself will fall. You can't do that. And so what you have to do is fight against it. You have to listen to these words. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods as words of what they were meant in that passage in the Old Testament. Words of sorrow, words of regret that that's what they tried to do. If you're not aware that there's a conflict, you can't even begin to fight against it. You have to keep this in mind. I have a choice to make whether to follow Jesus or follow this world, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it's kind of like exercise or diet. It's a choice that you're going to have to make over and over again. It's not like a one-time choice, though there probably needs to be an initial decision that starts you moving in that direction but it's a choice that you have to confront in your daily life. It gets easier to make as you continue to make it, but if you don't even acknowledge the incredible pressure that you live under, the incredible pressure to live in this vague twilight between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, you can't even begin to make those choices. So what I want to say this morning and what the table wants to say to you is choose sides. Give yourself unreservedly to Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God. And I can tell you that all the resources of God will become available to you if you do that. The spirit of God, all the resources of the gospel, all the assets of the people of God will be given to you so that you can meet the challenge. That's God's word to us today. Our gracious God, again, we thank you that you are king. You have always reigned as king, and yet... In this world, there is a pretender king, we are told, one whose defeat has already been secured at the cross, and yet we find ourselves engaged in the final battle. And while we know that the victory is secure and the end is unquestioned, at least for our individual battle in the midst of that, we don't always know the result. Pray that you would make us the kind of people who focus on you and your kingdom. And allow the table to speak to us of all of the resources that you have given to us as our Heavenly Father to feed and nurture us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.